This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. And everything man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. The cruelest thing God can do to you is let you succeed and think you did it on your own. Because you'll live your life independent of Him, and that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Don't Waste Your Humiliation, was preached by Mark Bates at University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, on November the 9th, 2008. The text is Daniel chapter 4. Listen now to Mark Bates on Don't Waste Your Humiliation. Now as we move on from there, we're in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, which is uh, an interesting story in the book of Daniel, one that may not be as familiar, but it is quite intriguing. As we're in Daniel chapter 4, it reminds me something happened earlier this week. There's a 19-year-old young man named Daniel Blaze. Uh, he was driving along I-4. Before he went for his little drive along I-4, he had some blue and red flashing lights. And he also had a little fake police badge, and he wanted to see if these things would really work. We don't know exactly his motive, but we do know what he did. He uh, got on I-4, and he pulled up alongside a car, rolled down his window, and flashed his silver badge. The guy looks at the badge, and all of a sudden, Daniel turns on the flashing blue and red lights. And so the man pulls over, and they pull over at that uh, rest area right at Longwood. Some of you probably know where that is. Pulled into that rest area there at Longwood. And uh, Daniel got out to make his uh, arrest or whatever he was going to do. The trouble is, the man he pulled over was a policeman. Someone did get arrested that day. <laughs> and young Daniel learned a valuable, valuable lesson. That just because you have the lights and just because you have the badge doesn't mean you have the power. And, you know, I think about that, and I think, of you know, what are the odds of this? I mean, of all the people in I-4, I mean, if you've been, I-4 is packed. All the people in I-4, what are the odds of you pulling over an off-duty police officer? I mean, the astronomical, yet he did. And you think of how humiliated he must be. He's going to be on one of those, uh, those you know, TV shows you've seen America's Dumbest Criminals. I mean, you know he's going to be there. And how this young man is probably just devastated, his friends and everyone else, just uh, uh, humiliated in front of everyone. Yet, you know, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to him. I mean, it really is. I mean, if he had gotten away with this, then he would have thought blue lights and a silver badge actually gave him power when they really don't mean anything. I mean, if he continued to go on, no telling what he would have done. That, he could have lived that delusion and it would have been harmful to his life. Um, and uh, in so many ways, even though it was the most humiliating thing that could happen to him, it really was the greatest. King Nebuchadnezzar had something very humiliating happen to him. He thought because he had a scepter, a crown, and a big army that he was in charge. He thought he had power to do whatever he wanted. But God showed him that he wasn't in charge. And he showed him in a way that turned out to be King Nebuchadnezzar's most humiliating moment. It's in Daniel chapter 4, and uh, it's a long chapter. We're not going to read the, uh, the whole thing, uh, but we're going to pick up at verse 10. What has happened is Nebuchadnezzar's had this strange dream, and... Um, by the way, in your bulletin of the outline, you see there the beginning and the end of the chapter. 
And this is a chapter is unique in the Bible in that it's a copy of a document that King Nebuchadnezzar sent out. It was a proclamation that he sent out to all the land. And it's, uh, so it's in a sense, it's his testimony. It's how he became converted from being a pagan king to one who acknowledges the God Most High. And, uh, and so he's sending out this document and he, and he tells his story of his conversion. Now, like all good stories, it has a moral. And we aren't left to guess what the moral is. Nebuchadnezzar tells us the beginning and the end of the, the story. Now, we're not going to read that part, but that crystallizes the point uh, for us very well. And so he has this dream, and uh, he calls for Daniel, after no one else can interpret, calls for Daniel to interpret it for him. And here we are, verse 10. This is God's word. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying on my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches.' Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most Holy is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He calls Daniel to interpret it. Daniel doesn't want to at first, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Go ahead, Daniel, don't be afraid. Daniel says, I wish this was about your enemies and not about you. And then Daniel interprets the dream and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. Your empire covers the world and feeds everyone in it. And then verse, verse um, 24, Daniel says this, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from the fields, and, and driven away from people, and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel interprets the dream, says, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is about you. God is going to cut you down for your arrogance. Repent care for the poor, and maybe your prosperity will continue. Daniel's dismissed. A year goes by, and we pick up at verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times, that is seven years, 
will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It's a great story. And it's a, it's a clear story. It doesn't require a lot of explanation. You can clearly read what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to look at two points of application. Two things that this text tells us about God. Number one, what it tells us about God, it tells us, number one, about the power of God. The power of God. Now, let's be honest. Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant, but he had every right to be arrogant. It seemed, anyway. He was the most powerful man alive of his day, maybe the most powerful man of all time. He conquered everyone who stood in his way, and so he proved that he was a mighty conqueror. But not only did he prove he was a mighty conqueror, he proved he was a fantastic administrator and leader. He gathered together people from all different cultures, different religions, different worldviews, different practices, different languages, and molded them together into a unified empire, an empire that was filled with peace. Not only was he able to rule, but then he was able to build. He built the most magnificent city possibly that the world has ever seen. There was a tower in the city over 250 feet high. There were uh, colossal statues of gold throughout the city. We know from uh, ancient historians. We also know that he had a wall around the city that was so wide and so tall that a, a chariot with four horses could turn around on top of the wall. He had the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was uh, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He was an incredible man. And so we look at this and we think, of course he was arrogant. I mean, you know, there's an old saying. It's not, you know, it's not arrogance. It ain't bragging if it's fact. And the fact is, he was a great man. And he built a great empire. And, uh, and so it seems perfectly natural uh, for him to be so arrogant. It is perfectly natural. But it's also perfectly sinful. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is not taking into account is God's hand in the whole process. Look again at verse 30. He said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he did this on his own. He looks at the city and said, I built it. I did it. It's mine. It's for my glory. Aren't I great, the great Nebuchadnezzar? He says, this is a tribute to me. What he's failing to take into account is that God's involved in the process. Now, now Nebuchadnezzar didn't see God involved in the process. He says, where was God? I conquered him. Where did he conquer anybody? I built the city. Where did God build the city? I didn't see him plan anything. And so he was arrogant because he didn't think that God had anything to do with it. But the truth is, the reason Nebuchadnezzar was a great conqueror it's because God made him a great conqueror. The reason Nebuchadnezzar was a great ruler is because God made him a great ruler. The reason Nebuchadnezzar was a great uh, builder is because God made him a great builder. The truth is that everything he had was a gift from God. And that's true about all of us. Everything that you have is by God's grace. The Greek word for grace is charis, which we get the word charity from. Everything that you have comes to you by way of charity. Your house 
is an act of charity of God. Your job is a charitable gift to you from God. Your car was given to you by charity. Your bank account was given to you by charity. And you're saying, wait a second. No. <laughs> you know, I know what charity is and I know what I've done. I didn't get charity. I worked for what I have. I earned what I have. I, I, I got here on my own. Nobody gave me charity. The fact is, your house is just as much an act of charity as if it had been built by Habitat for Humanity. That assaults our senses, doesn't it? Saying, no, uh-uh. Okay, how'd you get your house? Well, I worked for it. I earned it. How? Well, I have a job, and I worked hard at my job, and I worked hard to get to where I am. Okay, great. How'd you get that job? I went to, uh, to college, and I studied hard, and that's how I got the job. How did you get to college? Well, I studied hard in high school. How did you uh, get the self-discipline to study hard? Well, my parents taught it to me. Where'd you get your parents? Okay, I didn't pick my parents. I mean, maybe I would have picked differently if somehow, you know, but I didn't pick my parents. No, okay. Uh, where did you get your mind that enabled you to study? Where did you get the discipline, the self-discipline that we call it, that gives you the ability to work hard? How come you have it and other people don't? How come you were born with these opportunities and other people were not? The fact is, the only thing you contribute it to is either, either you have to say it's all just fate, all by chance, you know, the Forrest Gump philosophy, Life is a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You just happen to draw a nice little piece of chocolate and somebody else who happens to live in Bangladesh got a bad piece of chocolate. You'd have to say it's just a matter of fate or you have to say it's a matter of charity. It's one of the two. Either, either life is meaningless or there's a God behind it who's been charitable to some. And so what we see here, what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you think you did it all. But it's all an act of charity. Everything that we have is an act of charity. It is all a gift of God. And what happens then is we think, no, I'm a self-made person. When you begin to think, I did it, I earned it, this is mine, then what happens at that point, you begin to lose all compassion for everyone else. If you believe that you did it all on your own, you will never be a compassionate person. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel speaks the words of judgment to him, verse 27, Daniel says, O king, be pleased, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. What does that mean? Well, Daniel explains it with the next sentence. This is a Hebrew parallelism. The first one says, renounce your sins. The second sentence explains it more clearly. How does he renounce his sins? By being kind to the oppressed. What does being kind to the oppressed have to do with arrogance? Everything. Everything. Nebuchadnezzar's uh, arrogance led to oppression. If, if I believe that I've earned everything I have, that means I deserve what I've got. If somebody else doesn't have it, then what does that mean? They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. If they want what I've got, tell them to go out and work for it. Get a job. You know, come on. Get with the program. Have some discipline. Work hard. Set some goals. And so we begin to get less compassionate because we think, I've earned this. You haven't. If we begin to see that the reason I have what I have is because God has been gracious to me, the reason that you have the mind that you have, the reason you have the abilities that you have, the gifts that you have, notice the word gifts, is it because they are gifts of God. If you are gifted, it's because God has so gifted you. And so, and we can't take credit for that. So, so then if I see that as everything I have is an act of charity, then all of a sudden I realize that if I'm only making it by God's charity, then others are only going to make it by charity as well. If I'm living by charity, 
then, then I'm certainly much more compassionate on others who have to live by charity too. See, the Gospel reminds us that we are here by charity and charity alone. That's, that's, the, that's the essence of being a Christian. That's why you know, the, the, being a Christian means understanding I have earned nothing before God. I have done nothing to deserve His blessings, yet He loves me anyway. And because I begin to, the more I begin to realize that, the more I realize that I stand on Christ and Christ alone on His charity, then suddenly I'm going to be much more compassionate towards others. Uh, that's why, as a Christian, charity and mercy are not things we add on to the Christian life. They are naturally a part of the Christian life uh, because we live by it. If, if we are not charitable towards others, then there's some way, there's a disconnect. We're not getting the gospel. If we look at, at, at people who are in need and, and don't have compassion on them, then somehow we, we, we don't understand. It, it, somehow we're not believing the true gospel. There's a disconnect between those things. Because if I believe the gospel, then I'm saying that I am here by God's grace and grace alone. And then when I see others who are in need of grace and charity, it reminds me of myself. All of a sudden I look, instead of, instead of uh, looking at them with arrogance, I think, that's me. That is me. Because then God reached out His mercy to me. And because of that, I'm going to reach out in mercy to others. And so the more the gospel begins to penetrate our lives, the more we're going to be charitable. That's why the church is involved in, in such things as, uh, as, as speaking up for the unborn. We've been shown grace. We want to make sure that the unborn are shown grace. That's why we get involved at life care. Because uh, the elderly can't, can't care for themselves. And we say, you know, someone needs to show them love because God has shown us, our, uh, shown us His love. That's why we get involved in the manna ministry, because we're saying, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, there would I go too. Uh, notice it's interesting. During the dream that the messenger says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, God has taken the lowliest of men and made them rulers. God didn't pick out the best. He picked out the lowliest. What's the point? That Nebuchadnezzar is king not because he's so great, but because God uses weak people. And God has shown His grace even to the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. We, we live by grace and by grace alone. Caring for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed are not optional for the Christian. It's a natural outflow of the Christian life. It means we understand grace. And if we don't have compassion, we don't understand grace. And the more we understand grace, the more compassionate we're going to be. Many years ago, Abraham Lincoln uh, wrote a proclamation for a national day of uh, humiliation, fasting, and prayer. It was 1863. And he wrote something I think could, could aptly describe uh, our situation today. He says, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. Stop right there. Doesn't that just sound like the campaign speeches? I mean, and it doesn't sound, but I mean, not just the campaign speech, doesn't it just sound true? I mean, it, it is true. We, we, are, we are incredibly prosperous. Uh, and, uh, and so it describes us. So does the rest. He continues. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserves us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, 
we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That's where we are. We look and say, I've got my house, I've got my car, I've got my stock portfolio, and I think, I'm set. I've done it. I've accomplished it. And God says, no, you didn't do, I, I made you. I've given you everything. You're here by charity and charity alone. And so he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you're a king by my grace. Verse 32, then God tells him, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. God is sovereign over everything, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, I've got my crown, I've got my scepter, I've got my army, I'm in control. And God says, no, you're not. The reason you're in control is because I put you there, and the reason if I put you there, I can take you out any time I want. To prove the point, I'm going to do it. And he takes Nebuchadnezzar out for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to see that God is the one who's in control of human events. Now, now the nation of Israel was beginning to wonder if God was in control. Here they've been taken into captivity by this wicked king. He was an, he was an evil tyrant. He'd slaughtered people many times for pleasure. And, and so they're beginning to wonder, why does God let the Babylonians conquer, conquer us? And he said, you know, why would he do such a thing? And the book of Habakkuk addresses that, that very question. And so they were saying, why does, why does he allow this to happen? Is God in control? Later on, the Greek Empire would conquer him, and then the Roman Empire. And the question would always be, is God in control, or are these nations just too mighty? Are they too powerful? Today around the world, many Christians ask the same thing as Christians sit in Muslim countries where they're being persecuted for their faith and they think, is God powerful enough to stop this? We've, we've prayed for the persecution to stop and it doesn't stop. We, uh, we look at this and we think, is God in control of history or not? And God says, I'm in control. I can take Nebuchadnezzar and I can make him a donkey if I want to. And, and he shows Nebuchadnezzar that he is nothing but a fool. And God says, I'm in control of history. Now, for what that does for us as Christians is we suddenly see we're not hapless victims. There is no power outside of God's power. There's no one who comes against you that is not within God's grasp. That means then that everything that happens to you happens according to God's divine purpose. And that also means then, if you are a child of God, that everything that happens to you then happens ultimately for your good. And even the Babylonian captivity, even Nebuchadnezzar being raised to the throne, was God was ultimately in control of all of that. And it's all for our good. Anyone who has power only has it because God gives it to them. We, there are times we question that. We see it seems like the, the righteous suffering and the, the wicked prospering. We see, uh, see the, the evil people getting ahead and we wonder, is God in control? We look at life and we think, think, think where is God? Those questions come up when you lose your job. You say, is God in control of my life or not? When your spouse comes home and says, after they've been married a number of years, and says, you know, it's not working. I don't, I don't love you anymore. When your child rebels, when your uh, finances hit, hit the bottom and, and, and you don't know what to do to fix it, you begin to say, where is God? We begin to question where He is. But God told Nebuchadnezzar, He said, the most sovereign the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone who wishes. And so what we begin to see is that God has a purpose even for our pain. Even in our pain, God is working something for our good. Even pain 
can be a minister of mercy to us. You say, that's hard to believe. It's a lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned, and we see that in point two. Point one was the power of God, but point two is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. About a, um, a year ago, I was at a, a small gathering of about 10 to 15 pastors, and the guy facilitating the meeting knew all of us pretty well, but we didn't all know each other well. And so he was going to do a little get-to-know-you thing to uh, help us get to know each other. And so he decided, I tell you what, everybody go around and share your most embarrassing moment. Now, if you've ever had to do something like that, there's a key to this game. The key is you've got to think of something embarrassing enough that people will believe it's your most embarrassing moment, but, you, but it can't be your real most embarrassing moment because that's just too embarrassing. So you have to think of something, so your mind's churning. Well, the problem was, was this guy knew us all well enough, and so he went around and he picked our most embarrassing moments for us. And he said, he talked to one guy, a pastor friend, he said, so, so Bob, tell about the time your wife walked out in your sermon because it was so bad. And, and, and so Bob's here, he has to tell the story. And he goes around, and he's doing all this, and he gets to me, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, what's he got? You know, what's he got? You know? And all of a sudden I realize what he had. And he goes, so Mark, tell about, and I'm not repeating it. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, uh, it was something that happened a few years ago, and I, I was just, all of a sudden, I don't get embarrassed easily. I'm turning red. I mean, I'm just humiliated in front of my peers, you know, and it's... Uh, it was so uncomfortable because all of a sudden my stupidity was being broadcast and not, you know, there, and there was no sympathy in the room. I mean, you know, you think pastors are compassionate? Well, I am, but the rest of them, no. Uh, and, 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 I'm, and I'm just bare here before them. And I'm crushed. I'm just crushed. And uh, I think of this because Nebuchadnezzar is telling the story of his most embarrassing moment. And what, you know, he tells about, let me tell you about, he says, let me tell you about the time God turned me into a donkey, or made me live like a donkey out in the woods. I mean, that's embarrassing. I was emperor of the world and I, I went out and ate grass for seven years. That's humiliating. And he tells a story, now you would think he would tell it with all the shame, but you look at how he frames it at the beginning and the end of the chapter. He's not, he's not going, oh, this was so bad. He says, let me tell you about the mighty acts of God. Let me tell you what God did. And he tells, and you think, you think he's going to tell about how God made him king of Babylon. But he says, let me tell you about the exciting thing God did in my life. He made me a donkey. And you go, whoa. What are, you know, Nebuchadnezzar. Why is he so, he is delighted in what God has done to him. Why? Because the most humiliating thing that ever happened to King Nebuchadnezzar was what he tells about. Seven years living out as a wild animal with his nails growing and his, and his hair growing all over his body and everything else. It was the best thing that ever happened to him as well. His most humiliating moment was his greatest moment. Because at that point, God broke Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was in control and God said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not. Sometimes the most gracious thing God can do to us is humiliate us. Because we think we're independent. We think we're in control. We think we can make it on our own. And sometimes God just has to slap us down and say, no, you're not. And all of a sudden, we look up and we say, I thank God I'm not in control. I thank God I was wrong. I thank God that you are God and I am not. You know, that's the first theology lesson you have to learn. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not Him. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's the most important lesson you'll ever learn. Nebuchadnezzar learned this that day and says, God is in control. He is on his throne and therefore uh, I am not on my throne and he delights in it. Nebuchadnezzar is joyful. Now, George MacDonald once said, he said, and whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably 
or succeed more miserably. And everything man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. The cruelest thing God can do to you is let you succeed and think you did it on your own. Because you'll live your life independent of Him, and that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. You know, I, I see this experientially in my life all the time. But I think one of the ways in which I see it is I used to think that, you know, as I matured as a Christian, that, that I would get better. And I thought, uh, and in particular, I thought, I thought I just, you know, certain sins I just wouldn't struggle with anymore. I said, you know, by the time I get close to 40, which is where I am, I'm going to have certain things licked. And, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to maybe have a few little rough edges to polish off. It hasn't turned out that way. Christian maturity is not where your behavior gets better. Christian maturity is where your repentance grows deeper. That's Christian maturity. Because this here is how it works. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you begin to see of your sin, and instead of all of a sudden thinking you're better, the more all of a sudden you realize how sinful you are, and, you, and at that point, you're ready to see God's grace. And also you become more and more repentant. The worst thing that can happen to you is to think you have nothing to repent of. You know, you know that, I mean, until you die, or get to heaven, that is, the worst thing that can happen to you is you have, think of nothing to repent of. Because at that point, what happens is, is you're going to think, hey, I've got this thing licked. I haven't sinned in a long time. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty much under control. And at that point, you don't need Jesus anymore. You know, if I didn't sin, I wouldn't pray. It's just the way it is. If I didn't sin, I wouldn't pray. Because I wouldn't need to. I, I, would think, I would think I had my Christian life under control. It's not that you sin so that grace increased, Paul says. But the more we sin, the more we see God's grace. And so the more we begin to see our sin, the more repentant we are, the more dependent we become on Jesus Christ. And the person who does not see his sin in his life, oftentimes is really, or not oftentimes, always, is the most ungodly of persons. That's why Jesus and the Pharisees never quite clicked. They didn't repent. They didn't have anything to repent of. It's those who begin to see their sin because they're humbled before God and they see that without the cross of Christ, they are nothing. They begin to see that without Jesus, they are nothing. And until you come to the point and say, Jesus, without you, I am nothing, then the gospel will always be distant. It will always be, be theoretical. That's why the Lord's table is so important for us today. As we come to the Lord's table, it breaks us. It reminds us of how sinful we are. Because you cannot understand God's grace without first understanding your sin. And so we are reminded that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins. That's how severe it is. But there's another truth. You cannot face your sin unless you first understand God's grace. Because you just you won't have the courage. And so the Lord's table does that too. It says that your sins may be great, but the grace of God is even greater. That you are not a failure, but you are holy in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has died, and we remember that when we come to the table, to pay for our sins. This morning, I invite you to come to the Lord's table to celebrate it with us. I invite you as you come, to come as one who says, Lord, I need you. Not as one who says, I've built all this, I've done all this, I have this great Babylon to offer you, O God. But come as one who says, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need your grace. There's nothing in my hand I bring. I'm sustained by your grace daily. And I come hungry and starved for the food that you give me. Let's go to him. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. 
We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.